Remember, and also praying ourselves, I found our way to Judges chapter 13 now. And again, we're, this is the story of Samson, uh, which is, in my opinion, one of the strangest uh, stories in the entire Bible. And uh, here was a man who seemed to have a lot of privileges. You know, he has a lot of advantages uh, growing up that really could have and probably should have set him up to be one of the greatest judges of all time. But instead, that's not what happens. And this is the story of the life of a man who was so richly anointed with the potential for blessing and victory, yet his life is marked with disgrace and spiritual defeat. And Samson was to be a leader in Israel. He was to be, remember, God's instrument to deliver his people from, or at least begin to deliver, if that's what our text says, the people uh, from Philistine oppression. He was... uh, that he was supposed to be the instrument that God was going to use to do that. But unfortunately, his walk with God is so erratic, so erratic at, at best, and marked with far too infrequent contact with God, to say the very least. And how could it be that someone with all the advantages given to them by God, really even before he was born, uh, falls so easily short of of the potential that God has in store for them. How can that happen? And that's what we want to look at tonight as we continue our look at the life of Samson the Nazarite. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been in this text. We're only up to verse 5, so let's just kind of recap what we know so far, and then we'll pick it up from verse 6. Remember, we look at verse 1 here. Now the sons of Israel again, again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And we see that phrase, did evil in the sight of the Lord again. This is now the seventh time that we've seen this cycle of sin. Remember, that's what we call that. And this time the Lord gave them over to the hands of the Philistines. But this time, notice, it's really a long time, 40 years, right? 40 years. What's what's so very interesting uh, in this Philistine oppression is that in every other instance of Israel's oppression, what would be what would normally happen? There would be there would be sin and then servitude and then supplication, right? So the third step here is they would cry out to the Lord, right? They would cry out to the Lord. We don't have any instance of that ever happening here, although they were in pressure, they were uh, under oppression of the Philistines longer than they were under oppression of any other nation. We don't have a single instance of them crying out to the Lord. And so but that, that never happens. So this becomes significant as we walk through the next several chapters in the coming weeks, especially in lieu of the interactions between the leaders of Israel and Samson. We're going to see how they go back and forth and how far they have strayed and he has strayed from God. So how could Israel be oppressed by the Philistines longer than any other oppressor and yet never cry out for deliverance? How did that happen? Well, if you remember, the answer is twofold. First, the Philistines' tactic was not brute force, right? The other ones were very brutal, would come in and just, remember, they'd come and steal all their crops and then head back out again. And, you know, uh, they were raping their women. I mean, they had a lot of things that were just horrible, horrible things. Uh, They didn't do it that way. What they did was assimilation, right? Their their plan was to entice, right, Israel's sons to marry their daughters, right, and vice versa. So they could be assimilated into the culture, knowing that Israel would start to abandon its uh, its separated life for God and start 
really mirroring more of what their lifestyle was. And that's exactly what happens, incidentally, in unequally yoked relationships, is it not? You think that you're going to what we call, uh, what is that called? Something dating, missionary dating, right? Where, okay, well, that person's not safe, but I'm going to keep on dating them anyway, even though they're not saved, in the hopes that the, through dating they will be saved. But that rarely happens. Usually what happens is the saved person ends up looking a lot like the unsaved person, uh, all in the name of love. Okay. So, uh, secondly, so the Philistines' tactic first was assimilation. Secondly, they learned to make iron, and thus they had made the, their farm implements and weapons to sell to the Israelites. And, then, and Israel soon came to rely upon those, right? I mean, metal was a farm implements were a lot better than wooden ones. They lasted a lot longer. They were more effective. And then certainly when it came to weapons, right, they were far more effective. So it became kind of a a money-making venture for both parties involved. And so neither one of them was real anxious to get out of this relationship where they had with each other because the Philistines were making money and the Israelites were making money. And this seemed like a pretty good little deal. And so let's just kind of put God on a back burner, if you will, and, hey, these Philistines aren't that bad. We'll just kind of mix in our own culture. So the people were enjoying a great time of affluence, and they liked it. Life was easy. Life was good. No real struggles. And uh, so comfortable in their affluence, so comfortable with their new assimilated families that they have completely reasoned for themselves that God would be okay with whatever they were doing. They had justified that. In their own eyes, there was nothing really wrong with what they were doing. Then we saw in verse 2 that we're introduced to a certain man of Zorah of the family of Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had borne no children. So now we meet Manoah, who's the father of Samson. And his wife are from the tribe of Dan. Now remember when the tribe of Dan had moved north, now Manoah and his wife had stayed in the original territory of Dan. So they were about 15 miles from the Philistine border. They're very close. They're really basically in their backyard, which, as again, was very conveniently located right next to them. So... We also see here that Manoah's wife was barren, which would have been exceedingly difficult, right? And this, especially in this time, and exceedingly difficult in this time as well. But unlike the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, the text is silent on her longing for a child. We don't have any instance where she is crying out to God uh, to fill her womb. So there are no appeals to God for her husband or for a child. Now, the angel appears to have come to her at random, reinforcing the fact that the raising up of this deliverer is a gracious work of God from the very beginning, right? She's not calling out to God. Nobody's calling out to God during this time. And yet the angel of the Lord shows up. So we see in verse 3, then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. So finally, God intervenes, literally, right? Because this is, the text tells us, the angel of the Lord who appears to Manoah's wife to tell her that she's going to have a son. And this is none other, we find out later in the text, than whom? This is the pre-incarnate Christ, right? This is the pre-incarnate Christ coming to announce this wonderful news. Look at verse 4 and 5 then. Now, therefore... Be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, 
and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So the Lord appears to Manoah's wife and tells her that she would finally have a child, a son. And then he proceeds to tell her that the child was to be raised his entire life under a Nazarite vow. Okay, so remember what a Nazarite vow is. Nazarite means what? Or Nazir means to separate. So a Nazarite is a separated one. Okay, Nazir, the Hebrew word means separate. So they were to be separated unto service for the Lord. That's what's supposed to happen here. That's what a, when you took a Nazarite vow. And with that service for the Lord came very specific restrictions of separation. First, this vow was voluntary and usually for a very specific amount of time, usually 30 days. Someone would take a vow to be separated unto God. And what are the things they would do? That's a, usually it's a very short time period, sometimes longer, but generally 30 days. Okay, uh, But we do have instances in the Bible where some uh, took a Nazarite vow their entire life. Right? So clearly Samson is one. Who else was a Nazarite from birth? John the Baptist and Samuel. Right? Samuel. Although Samuel's not called a Nazarite, but all of the same things. So, for all practical purposes, I should say. God imposed Samson's function as a Nazarite upon him for a very specific purpose. Now, secondly, it was a special vow of separation and devotion to God, usually connected with a special mission uh, or act of service. And then third, while under the vow, the person could not drink anything made from the vine. Okay? No wine. Right? No, no grape juice. Fourth, they could not cut their hair. That was an outward symbol to let everybody know they were taking the vow. And at the conclusion of the vow, they would shave their heads and then present this cut hair at the temple within 30 days. And then lastly, they should not come in contact with a dead body. Now, all of that we find in Numbers chapter 6. Remember, we were looking at all of that in detail last time. So it's emphatic about a Nazarite not having contact with the dead. But nothing of it is said here in our text. Did you notice that? Nothing is said about that in the text. However, there is something mentioned here that's not part of the Nazarite vow, which is refraining from foods that are ceremonially unclean. Now, what's so, what's so interesting about that, and we ask ourselves, why is that not mentioned in, in number six, which describes the Nazarite vow? Why is that not mentioned here when they're covering all the other things? And I believe that's because all the Jews were to refrain from eating foods that were ceremonially unclean according to the law. If you read Leviticus 11, it's all in there. You know, don't eat this, don't eat shellfish, right? Don't eat, you know, all of these things. Uh, and that, this would have been the expectation for every Israelite. This wasn't something special, but it's interesting that it's placed in here, but it's something that every Israelite should have been following. It's not part of the Nazarite vow. It's something that is against the law, right? The, the Mosaic law. So on one hand, someone under a Nazarite vow was expected to go even beyond the strict requirements of the law. But what's interesting is that the angel of the Lord specifically prohibits it in the case of Manoah's wife. Now, why would it be necessary to forbid them to eat unclean foods if they've already forbidden in the law. And I believe it's because of how bad things were there, right? The, the rampant apostasy and they, 
you know, they had forgotten the things that were even basic. And so the angel of the Lord is saying, hey, let's not forget. This is just part of the law. These are things I don't want, you know, I don't want you to do. So isn't it interesting that God's solution to assimilation is to raise up a deliverer who's to be completely separated from that culture? That's God's solution. So food and drink were an essential part of heathen worship, and thus in order to worship with the Philistines, one would eat their unclean foods, and it would appear that Israelites were already regularly eating unclean foods as part of this assimilation. And uh, once again, they had convinced themselves, you'd ask, well, how could that happen? How could they forget the Mosaic Law when it was essential to who they are? I mean, they would have learned the law from the very time they were old enough to understand the law. How could that happen? Well, because of the assimilation, they had convinced themselves that it was not evil in their eyes to do that, right? Uh, but a Nazarite had some additional requirements, even more stringent, as I said before. So as a Nazarite, to be set apart to God, it was necessary to apply even this general prohibition to Samson. And now, why did the mother have to separate in the Nazarite vow. I mean, she's not taking the Nazarite vow, but God insists that she be a part of that. Uh, you know, it's 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 Samson that's Samson that's designated Nazarite by the Lord Himself, not his mother. Why does she have to abide by that? The answer I told you last time is because Samson is a living human being. The entire time he is in her womb, contrary to abortion advocates of today this is a child a living child a human being and uh when two humans procreate they produce humans i'm not sure what we're expecting otherwise but that's that's and here the biblical text just reaffirms this this is a child you're going to have a child so even before the child is born and this is going to he's going to be a nazarite from womb to tomb if you will right from birth to death nothing Right? None of these violations, none of these restrictions shall uh, he not do. So anyway, uh, look at verse 6 and 7. That's where we want to pick up here then from tonight. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. Verse 7. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink nor eat any unclean food. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now Manoah here's Manoah's wife, and incidentally we don't know her name. She's just Mrs. Manoah, I guess. She's Manoah's wife, right? Never mentioned in the text by name. Rushes to tell her husband, all that she had just seen and what the visitor had just told her. She describes his appearance like that of an angel. Right? She knows clearly this is somebody who is not an average human. Right? There's something going on there. However, neither, neither one of them at this point knows that it's the Lord himself. It is, they don't find out until a little bit later. And the text tells us that Manoah believes he's a man of God. In other words, that would have been a common Old Testament term for a prophet. Right? So his wife believes he looks like an angel. The husband thinks he's just a man of God. Although unsure, they both perceive that there's something different about him than just uh, than other mere men. So she doesn't ask his name or where he came from, and he doesn't tell her either. 
Then in verse 8, we see here that Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. So Manoah listens to his wife. Good lesson in here, right, for husbands. Right? Manoah listens to his wife. And then prayed, another good lesson here, right? Now we're finally praying, entreating, right? Praying to the Lord, asking for some wisdom and some guidance. Some of the commentaries here uh, believe that Manoah's being nosy and kind of pressing around and, you know, and he's mad that the angel of the Lord keeps coming to his wife. But I I don't see that here. I'm sorry. I I really see that this is a good godly couple who are doing their best in an ungodly land surrounded by ungodly people, including fellow Israelites who are so immersed into this other culture they've kind of lost their way but here we see uh, that he listens to his wife and then prays to the lord to send the man back to them warren wearsby says we can't help but be impressed with the devotion of this husband and wife to each other and to the lord it's pretty evident here and the time of judges was one of apostasy and anarchy but there were still jewish homes that were dedicated to the lord that still believed in prayer, and God was still working through them. Always has a remnant, doesn't he? Notice that Manoah prayed that God would send the man back another time so that he might hear from him how this promised child was to be raised. Did you notice that Manoah did not question God's ability to give them a son like Zechariah did? Did you notice that? It's just assumed that this is going to happen. Another, another indicator of strong faith here. Uh, and these are not spring chickens here, Manoah and his wife, right? These are, they're a little uh, more elderly, a little further along here. So he assumes that the promise of the child would be fulfilled, and this is a reason why he wanted further instruction regarding the raising of his special child. Now look at verse 9. So God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So God listened to Manoah's prayer and graciously appears to Manoah's wife a second time. Now, don't you find that a, a bit odd, right? You know, the first that she came, that, that God came to the woman, to the wife instead of the man, the husband. And then uh, she tells the story to her husband. He believes her, good husband. And then he prays for God to send him back again. And God comes back, but he comes back to the wife again and not to Manoah, the husband. So then in verse 10, so the woman ran quickly and told her husband, behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. So she hurries to find her husband and then reports the one who appeared to her earlier is back again. Verse 11, then Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Ooh, that's right. This time, Manoah follows his wife. They meet up with the man. Manoah asked the angel if he was the one who had spoken to his wife early. He answers, I am. Anytime we see that in Scripture, we're like, ooh, okay. All right, verse 12. Manoah said, now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So Manoah then begins by asking the messenger of God what the boy's life calling and ministry is going to be, right? And uh, this also raises the question of, you know, he's, he's asking, how should this child be raised? What, what is this special ministry, this special service that you have in mind for him? 
what's he going to end up doing? Because whatever it is, is going to make a difference on how we raise him, right? If he's to be a musician, then we want to make sure that we have those things available, right? Whatever it is. And uh, Manoah wants to know what God has in mind for this boy, as well as some instructions regarding how to prepare him for the calling God's going to place on his life. Notice how the angel of the Lord responds. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. So here we go again, right? Manoah's asking the questions. God keeps talking to his wife. The angel of the Lord answers, but he does not give a direct answer, does he? Not to this question. Actually, he just repeats what he said earlier with the admonition that the woman needs to pay attention to what he said earlier. And then he ends with, let her observe all that I have commanded. Nothing new was added. No further commentary, right? Just do what I said before and follow those instructions. Just simply do as I've instructed you, and that's all the information that you need. And I think there's a good lesson in here for us tonight. Manoah was a lot like God's people today isn't he? He wants more information to really fully understand God's plan. I mean, we want to know every step of the plan that God has directed before we'll commit to taking a very first step. Instead of trusting God with this first step and then trusting him to reveal the next step in the proper time, what is the proper time? In God's perfect time, I'll tell you when the perfect time is. The perfect time is whatever time God has ordained for you to know the next step. That's, that's exactly when the perfect time is. But far too often, that's not how we want to operate, is it? We feel God tugging at our heart. We feel God wanting, you know, you know, directing us in a certain way. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That sounds a lot different than the plan I had for myself. Could you give me all of the next steps, Lord, to make sure I approve I'm aware of them. Make sure I have time to, to pray over them. And then, uh, oh, by the way, if you could tell me the end result in the end that this is all going to be good, then I'll commit. But notice that God, here's that's basically what's happening here with Manoah and his wife, isn't it? Oh, I mean, this is a woman who is barren, right? And which would have been a huge stigma, a huge uh, cultural uh, shame and guilt. Most people, especially in the Hebrew context, would have considered that God was punishing them somehow when, in fact, God had uh, her, her womb is barren because God is going to use this for a very specific purpose, right? I mean, this is all part of God's plan. And so when the angel of the Lord comes and tells us it's going to happen, they automatically believe that this is going to happen. They've been questioning it, but now they're like, this is wonderful. This is great. Now tell us the next step. Now tell us whatever's going to happen next. We don't always have to know all that the Lord plans to do through our lives, do we? Do we have to know every step before we'll take the next step? Do we have, does God have to lay it all out for us? And for what purpose? So that we can approve it or disapprove it? So we can check or say, I can do that, but there's no way I'll be able to do that. I wonder sometimes... I wonder what we really need is to be faithfully obedient to keep the things that the Lord has shown us to do. That's really what he's saying here, isn't it? Did I not give you these instructions? Do I need to repeat these again? This, just do what I told you to do. When the time comes, I'll give you the next step of what to do. Just trust in me and take the next step. And then when, you know, when it's time to take another step, 
you'll know it's time to take another step. Keep moving. Or keep moving, and I'll open this door or close this one. Our, our Lord is really good about opening doors. He's very good about closing them as well. When it's time for something to end, he's very good about, that one's done. Now you're going over here. He's very good at that. We don't really need to know how God is going to do the things that he's told us that he's going to do. Yet we often stumble because we want to know how God is going to do what he's promised to us. It's not good enough that he's promised to do those things for us. Now we have to make sure that we approve the method by which he's going to use before we'll step again. The Lord often doesn't tell us the whole picture. Matter of fact, in my life, rarely, if ever, has that ever happened. Matter of fact, quite the opposite. It's normally just do it. He expects, he expects us to walk by faith in him. And if we knew what the Lord's plans were ahead of time, we'd try to shortcut those plans anyway and take the easy way out, wouldn't we? If he said, oh, you know, hey, listen, you're going to have to really suffer. Hey, I like your plan, God that suffering part over there. I figured it out, and I think we can bypass that if I just go over here and do this. What do you think? What do you think, Lord, huh? I'm not trying to, you know, I'm, I'm joking around a little bit, but isn't that really how we respond? I mean, if he did lay it all out and gave us every step, we'd go, I like this, I like that. I, I don't like this part over here. And so I figured out a different way around that. We need to realize that there's a tremendous learning to be had by us during these times where we simply step out in faith and rely and trust on the Lord to do what God has commanded us to do. Those times when we're walking by faith and simply trusting that the Lord knows what he's doing and that he will bring all things to pass in his own timing. We miss a lot in our walks with the Lord because we talk ourselves out of ministry opportunities to serve him. Sure, there could be a sense of inadequacy about taking on something brand new, but there can also be a tremendous growth when we simply step out in faith. Now, I'm, t I'm not talking about creating your own plan and then asking the Lord to sanctify it afterwards. I'm talking about doing what the Lord has laid on your heart to do. That thing that just keeps pounding away, won't go away. You know for a fact that's what you're supposed to do. You're just afraid. You're just afraid to do that. What I'm talking about is not missing opportunities to serve the Lord simply because of fear or anxiety or just the awkward and uncomfortable feeling we get when we're placed into situations that are new to us. Which, incidentally, in the life of ministry is virtually every day. I wonder how many gifted teachers have talked themselves out of being a part of God's plan for a child development just simply because they've convinced themselves out of anxiety or fear or whatever I can't do that. I shouldn't do that. I wouldn't be any good at it. I, that's not God's plan. That's not God's plan for your life. How many witnessing opportunities have been lost because we're afraid of rejection or ridicule? I wonder how many gifted deacons and elders and pastors have sidelined themselves simply because of doubt. Well, here's a simple test, I think, that we can take for ourselves to figure out if that's true. Would you invest your time into teaching if you knew that every one of your students would be impacted so profoundly that they would go into full-time ministry and millions would be saved? If God told you, I want you to be a Sunday school teacher, and every one of the children that you teach are going to devote themselves to a life of ministry, and millions will come to Christ because of that, would you do it? 
Of course you would. Does he have to show you that in order for you to step out in faith to do that? Would you take the time to witness to your neighbor if you knew ahead of time that he or she would become a powerful witness for the Lord and they would be responsible for every person in your family coming to Christ? I think you would. I would. Would you serve as a deacon or an elder or a pastor if your service was the key to every person in your family coming to Christ? Yes. What would you give for that to happen? How about every youth how about every youth group kid coming to Christ if you were to serve? See if the answer is yes, and I mean truthfully yes, to any of these questions, then you're letting your lack of faith determine your level of obedience to the Lord. God has prepared a wonderful work before you, incidentally, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians tells us. But you must be willing to trust him as he leads, even if he doesn't give you the entire plan up front. For we are called to walk by faith, not by sight. And I think sometimes, beloved, myself included, we can talk ourselves out of wonderful ministries, wonderful things that God has planned for us simply because of doubt or anxiety or fear. But that's not what the Lord is called. If you're having those feelings, those aren't from God. Okay? Because our God is not of God of fear or timidity. Right? Remember what Paul told Timothy? You don't have a spirit of timidity, but of great power. And so if God is laying that on your heart to do that, to serve in those areas, whatever that is, then he will equip you and make that happen. But you have to simply step out in faith. And you don't have to know the whole plan before you do. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer then. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time that we could spend together in your word. And, Lord, it's challenging when we think about dear Manoah and his wife and, Lord, their desire to really know more of the plan, to know more of it, uh, Lord, seeking to know more of it before they'll act. And, Lord, I pray that you search our hearts to make sure that that's not the case with us as well. I think so often, Lord, we overlook opportunities to serve you. We simply just talk ourselves right out of things to do. And we let those seeds of doubt planted by the enemy to grow and fester in our minds. It's easier to step aside and do nothing than it is to step out in faith and just serve. But Lord, you really challenge our hearts to walk by faith, not by sight. And Lord, I'm convinced that even if we did know the whole plan, we'd find a way to try and work around it. Lord, forgive us for that. I pray, Lord, that we would be a church body that would strive to serve you and just step out in faith, whatever it is that you've called us to, whether it's Sunday school teaching or nursery or music or leadership, whatever it is, Lord, that we would just step out in faith and serve you and trust that when it's time to take the next step, that you'll make that very clear. I pray our hearts and our minds will be in total obedience to you that will respond by your grace in a way that brings you honor and glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand, shall we, as we close. 
with him, 578.